Two and a half months into Israel's war on Gaza, our focus this week is on the attacks on journalism there. The number killed by Israeli forces is staggering. There's no shortage of evidence that they've been targeted. Looking for a beachfront property in Gaza? Israeli developers have been posting their post-war plans for new luxury settlements online. And evangelicals in America, Christian Zionists with broadcast networks that have faith in Israel. As a program about the global news media, we have covered assaults on press freedom by governments around the world for more than a decade and a half now. Never in that time have we witnessed a war on journalists like the one Israel is waging right now in Gaza. Israel has barred the international media from entering the Strip, so first-hand reporting on the onslaught there has been left to Palestinians already locked into the occupied territory. They are documenting their own genocide. The number of journalists slaughtered since October 7th, the speed at which that is occurring, is shocking. According to Gaza's government media office, Israel has now killed 97 of them. That's about 10 per week. But then Israel has a long track record of killing Palestinian journalists. That has been a defining feature of its occupation. What is different this time around is that with the eyes of the world on Gaza, Israel's war on Palestinian journalism is no longer a news story that's going under the radar. It's there for all to see. No one wants to start a piece like this with the story of one of their own. As Al Jazeera Arabic's bureau chief in Gaza, Wael Dahdu is the face of the network on this story. His cameraman was Samar Abu Dakar until he was killed last week in a drone attack in Han Yunus in southern Gaza. It was like being hit by a tornado. Three paramedics were martyred immediately, and Samud was wounded in the lower body severely. I fell to the ground and I got shrapnel here in my arm, went right through, another piece of my shoulder and two of my thigh. I tried to hide in one of the abandoned houses, but I realized if I hid, I'd bleed to death. So I stumbled towards the ambulance. I asked the paramedics to rescue Samer. He said, we can't, we have to save your life first. And when his body was found, it was clear that the rockets had targeted him again, even though he had tried to crawl towards the street in an attempt to survive. Al Jazeera says its cameraman was left to bleed to death for more than five hours as Israeli forces prevented ambulances and rescue workers from reaching him. In more than a century of warfare, including World War II, there is no precedent for the rate at which Israel has killed journalists in its war on Gaza. According to the government media office there, 98 Palestinian media workers have been killed. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists puts the number at 61. Using the lower CPJ figure and comparing it to another exceptionally dangerous war to cover, Iraq, 204 media workers lost their lives there in a conflict that lasted eight years. At this rate, the journalists' death toll in Gaza will exceed Iraq's in about eight months, which begs the allegation that having locked the international media out of the Strip, 
to prevent them from documenting the human carnage, Israel is targeting the Palestinian journalists it has locked in. It is extraordinarily disturbing as a journalist uh, to have a sense that certain governments, because it most certainly is not just the Israelis, the U.S. is guilty of this uh, as well, and many others, be able to kill journalists with complete and total impunity. Look, it's a war zone. <laughs> Things happen in war, journalists are killed in war, but this sheer uh, level of journalists killed is unprecedented and it does raise a significant number of questions. The situation has become very clear. In two and a half months of war, we have now lost roughly 100 Palestinian journalists. And this reflects clear targeting. Like in our case, for example, there was no one else where we were except for us. We were there for two to three hours, drones were roaming in the sky, watching our movements and following us. And despite this, they targeted us directly. All this gives us confirmation that Palestinian journalists are being directly targeted in this war. At the very least, if you support press freedoms and freedoms of journalists, you need to make sure that they can live, right? <laughs> that journalists have the conditions needed to do their important work. But the very, very basic first condition is that international humanitarian law protections for them are enforced. As we're, we're getting into... Oh my God, did you hear that? Oh my God. That's the hospital, that's the hospital. That's the hospital. Israel has a history of disregarding Palestinian civilian life. And Israel has a history, unfortunately, of killing Palestinian journalists who are wearing um, vests and helmets marked press and carrying equipment that clearly marks them as journalists. And this is a history that goes back decades. A track record that is long and deadly. Earlier this year, the Committee to Protect Journalists documented 20 such cases since 2001. Journalists, 18 of them Palestinian, killed by Israeli forces with zero accountability. What is happening now in Gaza follows the same pattern on a gargantuan scale. As always, Israel denies targeting media workers, insisting that journalism in Gaza is mere collateral damage. And in Washington, the White House echoes that line through its national security spokesman. I've not seen any indication whatsoever that Israel was going after journalists. Uh... Kirby said that two months ago, when 24 journalists had been killed. And he keeps saying it. There's a double standard at play. American opinion makers who are quick to condemn governments they oppose for abusing press freedom have a demonstrably different standard for their Israeli allies. We sometimes have um, the international community being selective about which journalists it cares about. Like Russia and Ukraine, where the United States was appropriately outspoken. Uh, the deliberate targeting of civilians, journalists and others, would constitute a war crime. So it's something that we're very focused on. But there has been less outspokenness um, when Palestinian and Lebanese journalists have been killed. The United States should be consistent in its insistence on protections for journalists. When armies disobey the laws of war and there are no consequences, they will continue disobeying the laws of war. And that's what we're seeing here. We can say pretty openly 
the Western media does have a Western bias and the attention that is going to be put on Palestinian journalists dying in Gaza is not going to be proportional to the attention that gets put on something that, that happens to a Western journalist. That is the unfortunate nature of the world that we live in. We all need to take a hard look at ourselves and confront our own bias, even if we don't want to accept that we have one. I just was going to... Picture this. You're a Gazan journalist, and your coverage is making an impact, finding audiences. Like Moataz Azaza, who has 17 million followers on Instagram. Hello. Hello. Hello, Mutaz. How are you? Your phone rings, and a mysterious voice speaking in English with an Israeli accent tells you to stop your coverage or to turn it against Hamas. Can you post a story maybe condemning Hamas so this can all end? What? Hello? What? He tells you, or you suspect, that he is an intelligence operative, and he knows where you live, where your family lives. Dozens of your colleagues or their loved ones have already been killed, and you are well aware that some of them got a call just like that one before the bomb hit. When you get a phone call from some shady character on an unknown number, I mean, that is beyond chilling. Other journalists have also stated that they have been told specifically, be careful, you know, we're targeting your area, but also not so subtly alluding to the fact of we're targeting you. It's really, um, you know, especially sort of horrifying that one should be in conversation with a nameless, faceless person with these kinds of threats, this knowledge of who you are and where you are. It demonstrates the overarching power dynamics here where Israel has so much information about Palestinians on the ground and poses this, you know, ever-present threat. And Palestinians nonetheless are doing their work and, um, and, con and persevering. The way Wael Dachtu perseveres. Seven weeks ago, he lost his immediate family, his wife, son, daughter, and a grandchild, all killed by an Israeli airstrike while sheltering at a refugee camp. Now he has lost a close colleague. Dachtu has every reason to stay out of the field, recover from his wounds in a hospital or some supposedly safer space. But he's still out there, covering this story and, as of this writing, still doing the job. It simply isn't possible to sit in a hospital bed while all this is happening in Gaza. Because we have to remain loyal to the blood of those who have been killed and to our mission, documenting this historic and exceptional moment that Gaza is going through. The alternative is what? To sit at home with what is left of my family? You could be hit by a missile at any moment, as is happening now in the streets and the alleyways and refugee camps of Gaza. And maybe become a martyr, maybe disabled. Staying at home will not offer protection anyway, because there is simply nowhere safe in Gaza. Israeli officials have made no secret of their intention to level Gaza and empty the strip of Palestinians. Now some Israeli business interests are sharing their plans for the territory once the bombardment stops. Flo Phillips is here with more. Richard, let's start with one of the latest examples of genocidal rhetoric we've seen coming from Israeli politicians since October 7th. 
That was the head of a local council suggesting Nazi Germany, of all places, had some ideas the Israelis could put to use against Palestinians. That kind of talk, once limited to the political fringe, has become mainstream in Israel, including from journalists on some of the most watched news channels in the country, celebrating the devastation in Gaza. And the settler movement, which has placed 700,000 Israelis in the West Bank in complete contravention of international law, now has its eyes on Gaza. A coalition of settler groups met to talk about that last month. This past week, Hare Zahav, an Israeli real estate firm heavily involved in the West Bank, posted a proposal to build beachfront homes for Israelis in Gaza. Zahav's CEO later told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that the proposal was in fact satirical and that, though they do indeed support the project, it's, quote, the Israeli state's decision. If that was the company's idea of a joke, it hasn't gone down well on social media, except with certain Israelis who see an opportunity in Gaza, in what more and more people around the world see as a genocide. Thanks, Flo. The White House continues to back the Netanyahu government, echoing its talking points, vetoing UN ceasefire resolutions and ramping up its arms exports. The Biden administration is doing all of that while keeping a wary eye on the U.S. presidential election coming up next year. It's not the Jewish vote the White House is worried about. There are only about 8 million American Jews and about half that number of American Muslims. Of far greater concern to the Biden administration are American evangelicals, Christians. There are roughly 80 million of them, a lot of them in swing states. Many call themselves Christian Zionists. They back Israel to the hilt. And they've been far less critical of this war than many American Jews have been. To get a feel for that, just tune in to a conservative Christian radio or television station. Sample the output. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on the media side of the Christian Zionist movement in America that's been spreading the word on Israel's war on Gaza. There aren't words to describe what happened on October 7th, other than the face of evil was revealed for the entire world to see. And we stand as one with you, with Israel. The October 7th attack by Hamas and the start of Israel's most devastating war on Gaza in history was a galvanizing moment for conservative Christian broadcasters in the United States. The Lord, talking to Israel, will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. I the want to Lord say to people, it's time for you to get to Israel. And when you get here, you are in this place as a watchman on the wall. There have been calls for global prayer gatherings, fundraising drives to buy bulletproof vests. We heard the need for these life-saving protective vests. The IDF doesn't have enough with the hundreds of thousands of reservists. Across the conservative Christian landscape, the message from Christian Zionists has been loud and clear. This is not just a suggestion that we should pray for Israel. This is a biblical mandate that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Christian Zionism is a belief that Israel plays a key prophetic role in the return of Jesus. So Christian Zionists believe that 
everything that happens with regard to the state of Israel from its founding in 1948 to the war that is occurring right now in Gaza are fulfillments of prophecy in the Bible. Tonight, Christians here in Israel and in the United States and in Canada and all over the world are watching what's happening and asking critical questions. Is this horrific war in Gaza part of end times Bible prophecy? Every time since the founding of Israel, when there's been major wars, uh, American evangelicals who are interested in prophecy have gotten very excited about the possibility that this war is the war that signals the beginning of the return of Jesus to earth, which they believe will happen, and they believe Israel and wars conducted by Israel will be central to that. Every time there's a major conflict in the Middle East, uh, the, the prophecy talk really ramps up. And I know everybody's been saying that forever, but it's kind of looking like, you know, Jesus might be coming. The talk of a holy land promised by God to Jews, his chosen people, an apocalyptic war signaling the end times and the resurrection of Jesus who would save all Christians, sounds to many as fantastical and weak grounds on which to base an understanding of global geopolitics However, this is a fundamental theological belief of more than 80 million Americans who call themselves evangelical Christians, many of whom firmly support Zionism, the political ideology underpinning the state of Israel. Led by charismatic and deeply political preachers who understood the power of the pulpit and transferred it to the airwaves through radio and TV, conservative Christians have had a significant impact on US politics for decades. Their success as broadcasters meant presidential candidates from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump sought their endorsement. Well, it's so good to have you with us. And often sought their policy input too. Evangelicals really punch politically far above their weight. So white evangelicals are far and away the biggest supporters of Donald Trump, for example. And despite representing a small proportion of the population, they do turn out to vote. So yes, they do have a lot of power. They also have a lot of lobbying organizations. And uh, one that's immediately gonna to come to mind in this context would be, of course, Pastor John Hagee's Christians United for Israel. Those of you who are watching across America and around the world, today the Jewish people are at war for their very survival. John Hagee is one of the most well-known of the prophecy-oriented conservative evangelicals. He's been doing this for many decades. He's been very involved in political organizing for Israel. Israel, you are not alone. Israel, you're not alone. What I noticed about his message when he was at the pro-Israel rally is that he really downplayed the parts of what he believes that would be offensive to American Jews. So he doesn't say uh, anything about, uh, you know, this is the end times are coming, this Jesus is going to come again, Jews have to convert in order to be saved, and he doesn't say anything like that. The notion of Jews needing to give up their religion, having to convert to Christianity if they want their souls saved at the end times, doesn't come up too much in the evangelical broadcast since October 7th. It almost doesn't need stating, since it's a core part of the end times narrative. Those who believe it have been taught that non-Christians simply won't survive. The other reason it's not said explicitly is because it's anti-Semitic. 
Indeed, some of the most prominent Christian Zionists have, at one point or another, been caught saying something anti-Semitic, and yet Israeli leaders, especially Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have courted these preachers and their congregations. Reverend Franklin Graham, the first major evangelical leader to visit Israel since the war began. Franklin Graham, he's the head of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Now that is an organization with a lot of money, influence, and power. And he heads this organization called Samaritan's Purse. So Graham, after the October 7th attacks, he indeed met with Netanyahu. So what does Netanyahu get out of a meeting like that, a photo op like that? Well, it's, it's a nod to American right-wing Christians that he is their friend, right? They see him and Franklin Graham getting along. It reinforces this sort of special relationship. The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Netanyahu is definitely speaking to evangelicals when he quotes the Bible. Netanyahu is undoubtedly aware that for American Jews, this war is becoming increasingly unpopular and that evangelicals vastly outnumber Jews in the United States and exercise a great deal of control over the Republican Party. And so keeping that relationship going is to Netanyahu's advantage in maintaining his relationships with Republicans and the support of America uh, for this war. The sprawling network of conservative Christian media outlets also play a vital role in cementing support for Israel's war. There are sporadic expressions of concern and empathy for Palestinian lives lost, but the focus is, by and large, on the need for Jews to defend their land. Father God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we ask that you accompany Israel's troops into the battle. What sharpens the impact of the messaging is that it's not all sermons and group prayer. Christian evangelical outlets present a lot of their output as though it's news. On the battlefront in Gaza, we're learning that Tuesday was one of the bloodiest days of the war. Religious organizations have had an impact as journalists for quite some time because they used to be clunky and awkward. Now they are much more professional looking and they talk about all the issues of the world and it allows people to get most of their news from these Christian sources and to have that interpretive frame right there. The packaging is a very black and white, good versus evil kind of framing because in their view, the Jews are God's chosen people and God gave the land to the Jews. Any claim to the land by Palestinians is wrong and needs to be defeated. So you know, Christian Zionists, therefore, support the occupation, support the annexation of more land. Yes, we want Hamas to be stopped. We want it to be uprooted and, and eradicated. But if they won't, then we need them removed. If they will leave, fine. If they will be arrested, fine. But they may have to be killed. And so if you knew nothing about that and came upon a sermon or a lecture by a Christian Zionist, you would think that you were looking at a good versus evil, very black and white situation, when in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And finally, this past week, a study of Facebook and Instagram conducted by Human Rights Watch concluded 
that the censorship of content related to Palestine there is systemic, global, and it fails to meet its human rights due diligence responsibilities. Those platforms are under the control of their parent company, Meta. Now, no one's under any illusions about where Meta's allegiance lies. Its business model comes first and foremost, which means its advertisers get a big say in what you see on your feed about Gaza and what you do not. Advertisers can dictate how you understand this war. One way to get around that is to look beyond what the platform is recommending that you see. Search for what you are interested in, not what advertisers are good with. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.